All right. So let's start this off. Let's talk about Hallmark movies. Um, it's, you know, just on the end of the Christmas season. So Hallmark movies are the bane of my existence. All right. There's, let me explain. There's two things I'm super snobby about, and that's coffee and that's movies. All right. Um, for about three years, I've been just like addicted to YouTube videos uh, about movies. I don't know how this addiction started, but I just find what goes into a good movie so interesting. Like to the point that right now, if God had not called me to be a pastor, I'd be going into film school. Um, and um, so I've watched like a ton of videos on this, and I love just good movies, and I won't bore you with all the details, but I just have a high appreciation of like good film. So while watching all these videos on YouTube, my, my tastes of movies have changed. Um, movies that I probably wouldn't have appreciated, I now like really love, or um, on the other end, movies that I didn't think, you know, I thought were okay or decent, I now kind of just, like, I don't like them as much because I see all their flaws. So naturally, I really dislike Hallmark movies. And before I go into this, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't hate people that like Hallmark movies. My mom and my sisters like Hallmark movies, um, even though it just, it, it pains me, I still love them, right? Um, for those of you who don't know, Hallmark movies are just low-budget, straight-to-TV movies on the Hallmark channel that are just really popular around Christmas time. They just like lean into Christmas and just pump out a ton of movies, about like 40 this past year, apparently. And it's estimated $2 million per Hallmark movie. You know, the average uh, cost of a movie is about $18 million. Blockbusters would be a lot more, but that's the average. Um, and Hallmark is estimated to make over, a uh, over half a billion dollars on their Christmas movies, which is insane. Um, and these movies aren't bad because they're low budget. My mom tried to argue with me with that. And no, because I've seen good low budget movies. And two, they have a ton of money, but they just, they just put in the minimal effort and just throw it out. And I think that's what makes me mad is just the, like they, they don't try at all. Um, and it just makes me so upset, but just, that's just because I love movies so much. You know. Um, I think of movies as art, and I want to support good art, and I don't want to support people that don't care about the art that they're creating. Um, but that just comes from my love of film. I love them so much that I call them film sometimes. And I'm not trying to be pretentious. I just naturally am, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, I, it's too late to change. I can't go back. Um, but like I said, I still love my mom and my sisters when they watch Hallmark movies, and even if we have different tastes, you know, this is my family as well, and we can still get along. But just think about something you love and appreciate, um, and think if, if someone loved like a, a really poor version of that. It would just sort of make you upset. It just, um, you know, you just wouldn't like it. Like, I'm not really a car guy. I like old muscle cars or new sports cars, but I don't really know anything. I don't think driving standard is any cooler, unless it's in a Fast and Furious movie, I guess. Um, but so is anyone here like a car person? Like, they're like, yeah, that's my thing. I love cars. Yes. Okay, now what if someone told you that their favorite car is a PT Cruiser? Doesn't that just cut you to the soul? Like, that's how I feel about Hallmark movies. And I'm so sorry if anyone drives a PT Cruiser. I'll be, I'll, like, it's just the, the main car to make fun of. And I'll be watching for a PT Cruiser to try to run me off the road. And that would just be the worst way to go. Like, I'm writing in my will today, if, I, if a PT Cruiser kills me, tell everyone I died in a better way. Like... <laughs> Um, anyway, or like here's a comparison that I think we can all get behind. Imagine um, this would just be the best thing if you had like an Italian grandma that made like the best homemade pizzas, like everything uh, fresh 
picked from the garden, homemade sauce, dough, uh, cooked in a pizza oven in their house. Like you just have, just naturally, you'd have a high appreciation for pizza. And then if someone said, yeah, 7-Eleven probably has the best pizza, like hands down, not even close. Like, I, I don't know about you, I'd want to fight them. Just, it just happens. And I bring this up because today's topic is community. And um, this is sort of a, a, a dumb analogy, I know, but here, like, I think Western culture churches and Western culture in general has cheapened community. You know, the way, like, we've just missed the mark. And the way that we treat community versus what the Bible teaches and preaches is just so far in comparison. Like, to me, it's like a Hallmark movie and a good movie. Okay, I'm done bashing. Or it's like a 7-Eleven pizza versus like a homemade delicious pizza. Like, it's not even close. And sometimes I just might think that God's kind of looking down and be like, why are you settling for that? No, I have something so much better for you. And that's a dumb analogy. I'm done bashing. I, I swear. But just to be honest, I just need to get that off my chest. I feel so much better now. Thank you. Uh, I don't have to pay for counseling or therapy. So this is great. I feel so much better. Um, and so I just think we've missed the mark on community. And I'm not blaming anyone here. Um, it's never our intention as pastors just to be up here and, and blame people or make you feel bad about your decisions. But um, we need to realize our faults as a culture, as a church, as individuals, so that we can grow and we can learn. Right? And I hope this sermon challenges our ideas of, of community and shows us a better way to live the way that Jesus is calling us to live. Before we go into scripture, I just want to say that uh, a lot of the ideas I gathered from this sermon is on a uh, a five-week series on community uh, at Bridgetown Community Church in Portland. Um, that was one of my main resources, so if you want to go deeper into this, you can check that series out. The pastor is called John Mark Comer, and he also has a really prevalent good new book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, so check that out too. Um, so let's look at what Jesus was teaching about community. So in Mark chapter 3, Jesus was teaching in a house with a crowd around him when someone told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Then Jesus asked, who are my mother and my brothers? Obviously a rhetorical question. Jesus wasn't dumb. He knew his mother and brother. Um, then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, which would have been his disciples and followers. Okay? And he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. All right, so let's try and understand everything Jesus is saying here. Um, first off, I think it's fairly clear that Jesus' idea for his followers, for his church, is that it should be one of family, right? Um, but here Jesus calls his followers brother and sister and mother. But uh, in other verses, he usually just makes that brothers and sisters. In Greek, it's one word, uh, adelphoi, and that, that one word is used by Jesus and the rest of the writers of the New Testament uh, as the dominant name for Jesus' followers. That's what they call Jesus' followers. That's um, how they address each other. It's used 342 times in the New Testament. So to understand what kind of community we should be growing towards, we need to understand what kind of community uh, Jesus was pushing for in his time. So we need to understand what Jesus' culture was like, what the community was like around him. Uh, so we need to know the difference uh, between what anthropologists call strong group community versus weak group, or strong group society versus weak group society. Jesus' world was a strong group society. So here's the definition of that. 
of a Strong Group Society by a cultural anthropologist, Bruce Molina. He says this, uh, In a strong group society, the person perceives himself or herself to be a member of a group and is responsible to the group for his or her actions, destiny, career, development, and life in general. The individual person is embedded, uh, is embedded in the group and is free to do whatever he or she feels is right and necessary only if in accord to group norms, and only if the action is in the group's best interests. The group has priority over the individual. All right, so strong group societies are still uh, very prevalent in much of the world and have been throughout history, like, except for recent history of Europe, uh, Canada, and America, uh, the, whole, the whole world has been strong group society. Uh, weak group society has its roots in the Enlightenment era and has grown since then. Like, there's always been individualism in people, you know, wanting to put themselves first, but it, it wasn't put as a core value of any society in history up until a few hundred years ago. Right, so uh, the, the philosophy of putting individualism as a main core value in a society is still a pretty new philosophy when you look at all of human history. And uh, this philosophy really changes our worldview. It changes how we um, even like read the Bible. We project our individualism onto the teachings of the Bible. And we need to be careful not to do that because we need to read and understand the Bible in the time that it was written. So we'll come back to our society in a bit, but let's just go deeper into the time of Jesus. So in Jesus' time, strong group society, right? And in that world, your primary group was your family. And at that time, family was defined as uh, like just the father's bloodline and not by marriage. So Jewish, Greek, and Roman culture would have lived in a society where their allegiance in their strong group society would have been... Um, would have been first and foremost their family ties, not who they marry. Marriage was often uh, just for the good of the group um, and usually not based on how well two people got along. Uh, it was very different. So what happened because of that was, uh, you know, because marriage was not based on chemistry and how well people got along, most people's closest relationships would have been with their siblings, the people they grew up with and loved um, for their whole lives. Um, and then we look at what Jesus is saying in the verse that we just read earlier. He calls his disciples and his followers Adelphoi, brothers and sisters. So when Jesus is saying this, he is saying that this is the most intimate relationship paradigm of his time. And that's what he's referring to when he says brothers and sisters. Which is so much of a greater call and meaning than, than we usually treat it. Uh, Jesus' call was to put his spiritual family over your physical family, which in his context was absolutely like just unthinkable, unheard of. And uh, that brought on a lot of the hate that he received and was one of the main reasons why people rejected his message. And Jesus, pre Jesus preaches about the importance of physical family, like honoring your father and mother, and he, he preaches how important marriage is, but he also preaches like against family just as much which is, is weird, but like, uh, let's read Luke 14, 26. So it says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Okay, so to understand verses like this, you need to understand the culture and the context of the time it was written. Right? When family uh, was the most important thing, and um, if you wanted to follow Jesus, but your family wouldn't let you, 
then you had to come under the authority of your family, or you had to reject your family completely, and they would reject you. Like still to this day, uh, with like uh, ultra-Orthodox Jewish families, um, if you follow Jesus, they'll hold a funeral for you. Or there's religions um, and families around the world that will like disown their own children and hate them if they choose to follow Jesus. And this is the price that some people had to pay to follow Jesus. So this is why this verse is so extreme. And because um, Jesus was just trying to get the point across how much more important his spiritual family is over any physical family. Right? And Jesus' teachings uh, were wildly radical back then, and they are still radical now. Oh, here we go. Um, Jesus did not speak out against strong group society, which is... Um, which I'm sure some of us would have hoped he would, you know. Hopefully he would have spoke for individualism because that's really how we feel. Um, but he never did. He, he, he never spoke out against a strong community and a strong group society coming under a community and authority. So we know that that's the way he wanted his church, to be a family of a strong group society, which is wildly different than our culture. You know, back then, Jesus was kind of fighting against the bond of family, keeping people from following him. And now it's like we're fighting against um, individualism that keeps people from entering into community at all. So now let's jump to our society, Western culture, Western society. Uh, here in Canada, we're part of a weak group society where the individual has priority over the group. We here just naturally assume that our desires, our preferences, our wants, our needs will come first before any group that we associate with, right? It's the just like the looking out for number one, kind of you do you mentality that's so prevalent in our, in our culture. And like, it's cultural, like it's a cultural taboo to just disagree with someone, right? Or tell them that maybe you should be doing that. That's looked down upon. In a weak group society that we live in, you can do anything you want as long as it doesn't harm anyone else or harm the group. But in a strong group society, you can do what you want as long as it's beneficial for the group or at least like widely accepted as a norm. And we think um, coming under a community and authority as, uh, as oppressive, right? We just think that if we come under a community or authority, that that will just oppress our rights and our freedoms and our wants. All right, and I think we have a hard time understanding what a strong group society would even look like. Uh, last year, I went to go see a movie, and it kind of gave me a glimpse into this, so I don't have time to explain how exactly it's prevalent, but if you want, watch The Farewell. It's a great movie. It came out last year. It kind of deals with that weak group, strong group society, Western versus like Asian culture, family, and um, loyalty, and it's, it's really interesting. It's really good. Um, okay, but... In our country and Western society as a whole, like individualism has just been on the rise, right? And community has been on the decline. Um, not just church attendance, but any form of community um, since the 1960s has been declining. Any form of uh, relationship really has been declining since then. And even then, like there's a lot of people that have friends, family, community of some sorts, but they still feel lonely and isolated and like no one understands them because their relationships just like don't quite cut it. And it's harder and harder to find deep and meaningful relationships. So here, about half of Canadians say they barely know their neighbors, which at first I was like, ah, yeah, that makes sense. But then I was like, no, that's actually crazy. Like you, you, you live and you eat and you sleep and you raise your families like 20 feet away from someone else and we barely know them. Maybe a wave every once in a while. Maybe the, the old like white people kind of no teeth, like 
little grin, you know, that you do when you pass by someone and awkwardly make eye contact. Like, maybe if you're far away, you can't see my face, but you probably know what I'm talking about. Um, right? Like, we're just disconnected from community. Loneliness is on the rise for Canadians. One in five um, Canadians feel like they're lonely often or all the time. And there wasn't a study in Canada for, for Generation Z, but or Z, I like Z better, sorry. Um, in the States, there was a study on the adults of, of Gen Z, so 18 to 22 year olds, and uh, over half of them said that they, they were lonely or felt like no one understood them, right? Like at this point in Western culture, loneliness is actually an epidemic. The UK two years ago uh, appointed a loneliness minister to try to govern, like to try and fix this loneliness problem a little bit. And it's not just... The effect of loneliness, that's so hard to say a lot of the time, loneliness. Um, the effect of that, it's not just feeling sad or um, alone, which is bad enough. It, has, it also has um, huge effects on our health. According to a meta-analysis co-authored by Julianne Holt-Lundstad, uh, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Brigham Young University, uh, lack of social connection heightens health risks as much as smoking 15 cigarettes a day or having alcohol use disorder. She's also found that loneliness and social isolation are twice as harmful to physical and mental health as obesity, which is crazy, right? The effects of loneliness and isolation are just insane. And it also reminds me that, like, the more I research the way that God wants us to live in any way, not just community, the more I understand how God wants us to live, the more I understand that it's actually best for us. Like, all, our culture pushes for individualism, but God is, is telling us to, to be a part of, of a community. And then we're seeing the negative effects of individualism and through loneliness and isolation. And it just reminds me that following what God wants is actually what's best for us. And I think that's so cool because he's so loving. And it can feel sometimes like the Bible is just like a rule book, but really it's a way to live our best lives here for God. All right, our culture has pushed more and more independence over individualism, or and individualism over community. We've replaced relationships with connections. Um, you know, we're, I've heard, I'm sure you've heard, like we're connected more than ever, but we're lonelier than ever. Um, studies have shown that those who use social media more are more likely to feel lonely and isolated. And although technology is great sometimes, and I love how funny the internet is, um, it, it, like technology needs to be a tool and not a crutch. And for so many people, it's, it's a crutch and it fills up your time, and it just leaves you empty. It doesn't fill you up in any meaningful way, right? It feels like you're more connected, but you're still isolated and lonely. And so just like parents, please, you know, help your kids find this balance because more and more technology is just like everywhere. And um, social media and technology are not the only reasons for loneliness and isolation, but they're certainly contributing. And we just live in a lonely, weak group society. So when we look at what Jesus is calling us to, and we look how far away our culture has taken us, it's crazy. Like, it's just so far off. And we can't blame our, all our issues on culture because we need to be, you know, reading the Bible and following Jesus no matter where our culture is going. But it's just so easy, especially over long periods of time, to just get pulled in whatever direction that culture takes us. You know, 
I think a lot of us just think that uh, coming on Sunday, maybe every few Sundays is good enough for community. Maybe having a few um, Christian friends, you know, come whenever it works. Maybe just serve a little bit again, like whenever it works for me. And like, there's no, there's no judgment, but we think that that is what community is all about. And we think that way because we've been taught by our Western hyper-individualistic culture. But we don't get this idea from the Bible. We don't get this idea from Jesus. The, the teaching of Jesus tells us to give up everything if you need to, to follow him and join his family. Because he gave up everything for you. You know, he died and rose again, and he is inviting you into his new family. We're called to love like Jesus loved us. One of the most important verses, I think, when looking at the community that Jesus wants us to have is John 13, 34 to 35. He says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Okay, so that's a very nice verse. Yeah, love, of course, we've heard that a lot. Good, another good Bible verse to put on the wall. But look at it a little deeper. Right? Like, what is Jesus actually saying by this? Love each other as I have loved you. So first of all, Jesus died for us. So are we sacrificing and laying down our wants, our needs, our lives for others? All right, and then he says, love each other as I have loved you. Then he says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Meaning this, that the love that the church should have for one another is supposed to be so wildly different, like so incredibly different than anything that the world sees that people will automatically know that it's Jesus. Like they'll just know that something's different about it. They'll know that it's not just people getting together in a building. Right? Like that's the, lo- that's the standard of love that we're called to. To be a family, to have love for one another here in a community like nothing else around us that draws people into Jesus. Jesus' vision for the church is one of family, and I know that, you know, I've said that a lot, and you've probably heard that a lot if you've been around the church for any amount of time, Uh, but, like, actually family. So family, what does that look like? Like, family eats together. They just spend time together, right? They are loving and affectionate with each other. They hold each other accountable. Your family calls you out. You know, sometimes there's discipline in family, you know, a family takes care of each other and shares resources and shares responsibilities. Uh, family is open with each other and they make decisions together and they encourage each other. And families like multi-generational, you know, your family and your church family are not just people that are around the same age that you are, that you have a lot of chemistry with, but um, they are people sometimes very different than you, right? But you love, you love your family anyway because they're your family. And Jesus is calling us that when we enter into a community through him, into a church, he's calling us to love everyone like we love our family, no matter our differences, that we still love them and get to know them on a deeper level, just like we would with family. And two really key pieces of true community is vulnerability and accountability. That's what continually pushes community forward is people being vulnerable, and then people keeping each other accountable. And that's a big call, and I understand if that scares you. (laughs) Like, I I get that. Um, That level of commitment and vulnerability and accountability with people that you 
you know, might just be completely random people around you, is scary. And that's, that's weird. But let's just address some of the roadblocks that people have to community. All right, first of all, like fear. We're scared of being hurt, and we're scared of our true selves a lot of the time. So, so like, people are scared of community. You know, community has hurt people. Relationships hurt. Family can hurt. We might be scared to enter into community because of what might happen. Which also, with this, is sort of mixed in, um, there's like an idealism that people have when entering into community. They think everything will be perfect, or people think that with marriage as well. Like, um, and then as soon as something's not perfect, they're hurt, and, uh, they, like, and they leave. Right? And that's, we have to understand going into community that people are broken. They're going to let you down. You're going to let them down. But when you stick it out, when you work together and like just come together in that community and you work past all your hurts and your pains, then there's healing in that. And there's restoration in a community. So we can't idealize community. I'm not saying that if you, if you join our church or you go deeper into community that you're not going to get hurt, because you probably are. But we're scared of getting hurt through community, but through community also comes healing. There was like a, a massive study done, done on emotional trauma that was super interesting. It, was, uh, it sought to identify how people recover from trauma and what emotional trauma is harder to recover from. So they went in expecting to find that like, the worse the trauma is, the harder it is to recover from, right? That just seems logical. Things that are like insanely tough to deal with, like suicide of a loved one or like sexual abuse or something like that. But what they found was that the type of trauma was almost irrelevant to whether or not a person healed. But what they found was that if someone was in close and intimate community on the other side of, of their trauma that they came back healthier than ever. Okay, so we're hurt by people, we're hurt by relationships and community, but we're also deeply healed by community. And, um, like, we're scared to be our true selves. We're scared to ad admit our faults and have those come to the surface. Um, but that's, like, the only way we grow. Like, this, this is discussed in psychology, that you need to accept the darkest parts of you and bring those forward so that you can deal with them. And... Um, if you want a Christian perspective on that, there's a book called The Gift of Being Yourself by David G. Benner. Um, it's, it's, really, it's really good, and I checked that out. But I somehow end up always suggesting books, and I just, I want to admit, I don't read that much. Uh, I'm, tr I'm trying just not to be fake up here. <laughs> like, it just happens that the books I read every once in a while, I can sort of fit into my sermons, so it makes me sound smart. Um, I need to read more. I'm trying. Okay, but Anyway, true and life-giving community needs vulnerability and accountability, and that's hard, and it scares us. And then commitment and busyness are whole other deals. Like, we're scared of commitment, but generally, the, like, what happens is when people actually commit, those are the people that grow. The people that just stay at surface-level relationships and kind of hop around and never really commit to actually putting their roots down somewhere, they never grow, because they never get to that opportunity when they can be vulnerable with someone and when someone can keep them accountable, right? So commitment is necessary, even though it's scary. And busyness is, is another roadblock, and I don't have time too much to, to um, unpack that, but I mentioned this book earlier, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. I'm only halfway through it, but I've heard great things, and so far it's awesome. And like busyness is just like plagued our culture, and it takes up all your time, and if you are constantly busy, you don't have time to invest in the community that you need. You don't have time to seek God and to, like, draw closer to him. 
because you're, everything's just filled up and you're burdened down and you're always tired and you're busy and that needs to change. And that's hard, but we can take steps towards that. You know, I can, I can talk forever about why we may not enter into community or why we should and all this stuff, but nothing's ever going to really change unless you choose to change. So, you know, you need to ask yourself, what is community going to look like? So this next year, wherever you're at, um, how are you going to grow in community? How are you going to grow in love? How are you going to grow in vulnerability and relationship and accountability and commitment? And what are you going to do to love people like Jesus loved us? Right? As we draw closer to Jesus, we need to be drawing closer to others. And those go hand in hand for living a Jesus-based life. More than ever, we need community. And not only do you need it, but maybe God's calling you to to community so that you can love someone that's lonely and isolated. Like, people need you. Right? We are becoming more isolated and lonely, and our culture is drifting further away from what Jesus wants for us. So what are we going to do to change that? 